All right, we are back. And another item of good news we cannot resist uh, talking about is the fact that NASA has succeeded in bringing back a piece of the asteroid Bennu. Some years back, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, which was launched in 2016, took two years to get to the asteroid, and then for two years it sat around it and took samples of rock, dust, and other measurements, and, and then sent a probe home containing chunks of dust. It's very cool stuff. We're going to have to reach out again to the B612 Society and talk to them about this is this is exactly their cup of tea the sort of thing they've been advocating getting out there doing something about asteroids doing what we can to maybe uh well learn about them and move them if we need to apparently Bennu, which is a um, pretty big piece of real estate it's described as the size of a small constantly spinning mountain or maybe comparing it to the sears tower story office building it'd be about right if it did smack the Earth uh, going, say, you know, 10, 15 miles a second, it would cause a bit of a stink. And future projections show that, uh, that Bennu could pass close to the Earth in the 22nd century. And let's face it, that gives us plenty of time to move it if, if uh, it looks as though there's going to be trouble. And also in keeping this in this effort to look at how we might move asteroids, there's some follow-up on uh, the asteroid that NASA smacked into back in 2022. As you may recall, back on September 27th of, of last year, NASA intentionally crashed its double asteroid redirection test, DART, vehicle into the asteroid Dimorphos. The goal was to slow the space rock's nearly 12-hour orbit around its parent asteroid, which is pretty cool math because you can tell how much mass you remove from the asteroid by how much its orbital period changes. And NASA was successful in this. Dimorphos's orbit shortened by 33 minutes. But they've continued to watch it since then. It looks like it may have slowed down another minute, meaning it's spewing material off of its surface. NASA is still trying to figure out exactly what's going on, and, and so are we. By the way, as we go to press here, it looks as though about a week from now, NASA will not only release some photos of the OSIRIS-REx dust, and other bits of rocky material. And if all goes well, we'll launch another asteroid mission. In this case, it's mission to explore the asteroid Psyche, which is rather unique among large asteroids out in the asteroid belt because it appears to be pretty much a solid piece of metal. The suspicion is that this asteroid was once part of a larger body that was starting to form into layers and have the metal sink down to the center, but somehow got torn apart. And we'll know a lot more when the... Uh, when the probe gets there, hopefully. And in an item from the miscellaneous file, which I guess I guess will go here as well as it'll go any other place in the program, is um, the startling news, to me anyway, is there's apparently a beetle down in Australia that's discovered a way to mimic termites. It, it grows a giant fake termite on its back, which is described as looking spookily accurate. And I'm looking at a picture of it, which I cannot share with you because this is radio and it looks like a big termite. Reported science.org. By enlarging its abdomen to comical proportions, it creates a puppet with a head, distinct body segments, and three pairs of appendages resembling termite legs and antenna. The disguise works well because termites are blind and they rely mainly on touch. Researchers think that the Beetle species may also absorb termite chemicals or reproduce its own versions of those pheromones to complete the misdirection play. The small size of its mouth suggests that it doesn't go into termite nests to eat eggs or larvae, 
but to beg digested food from the worker termites that feed other members of the colony. Once the one settles into a termite nest, it can expect to be fed as long as it wants. Pretty amazing stuff. And it also looks like this beetle has gotten this thing lined up just in time for Halloween. And Radio Parallax received a report from our very own veterinary medicine specialist, Evelyn Warner, who pointed out to us that apparently at a Phillies-Pirates game last week, the authorities refused to let a man enter with his service animal, which in this case was an alligator. And yes, we can only presume it was a Florida man. The day after reading this, I stumbled upon an article in The New Yorker, which uh, September 4th issue had a bunch of old articles. I didn't realize it was an old article till afterwards. This, this piece came from the October 20th, 2014 issue, which is damn near a decade ago. But it, it's so good, I have to quote from it. Piece by Patricia Marks. Notes, Ms. Marks, as you will have observed, an increasing number of your neighbors have been keeping company with their pets in human-only establishments, cohabiting with them in animal-unfriendly apartment buildings and dormitories and taking them free onto aircraft simply by claiming that the creatures are their licensed companion animals and are necessary to their mental well-being. No government agency keeps track of such figures, but in 2011, the National Service Animal Registry a commercial enterprise that sells certificates, vests, and badges for helper animals, signed up 2,400 emotional support animals. Last year, which would make it 2013, it registered 11,000, to which Marx poses the question, and what about the mental well-being of everyone else? Noting last May, for instance, a woman brought her large service dog, Truffles, onto a U.S. Airways flight from L.A. to Philadelphia. At 35,000 feet, the dog squatted in the aisles, and according to Chris Law, a passenger who tweeted about the incident, did what dogs do. After the second um, installment, the crew ran out of detergent and paper towels. Plane is in emergency landing because people are getting sick, tweeted Law. Hazmat teams needed to board. The woman and Truffles disembarked to applause in Kansas City, and she offered her inconvenienced fellow passengers Starbuck gift cards. I'm sorry, if I'm headed for Philadelphia and your pooping dog gets me put down in Kansas City, a Starbucks gift card is just not going to cut it. She goes on, last June, a miniature Yorkie caused a smaller stir in a, in a fancy Manhattan restaurant from a Google review of Altesi Ristoranti. Lunch was ruined by Ivana Trump, who sat next to us with her dog, which she even let climb to the tables. I told her no dogs allowed, but she lied that hers was a service dog. I called the owner of Altesi, Paolo Alavian, who defended Trump. She walked into the restaurant and showed the emotional support card, he said. Basically, people with the card are allowed to bring their dogs into the restaurant. This is the law. To which Marx added, Alavian is mistaken about that. Contrary to what many business managers think, having an emotional support card merely means that one's pet is registered in a database of animals whose owners have paid anywhere from $70 to $200 to one of several organizations, none of which are recognized by the government. To which he adds, you could register a beanie baby as long as you send a check. Even with a card, it is against the law and a violation of the city's health code to take an animal into a restaurant. Nor does an emotional support card entitle you to bring your pet into a hotel, store, taxi, train, or park. 
No such restrictions apply to service dogs. In contrast to an emotional support animal, ESA, a service dog is trained to perform specific tasks such as pulling a wheelchair and responding to seizures. The IRS classifies these dogs as a deductible medical expense, whereas an emotional support animal is more like a blankie. I highly recommend this piece, wherein Ms. Marks decided to test the limits of the law and educate people about what the law really was by taking things like a python down the streets of New York City, a llama into a drugstore, a turkey onto a train, and a pig onto an airplane. She succeeded in all of these endeavors by whipping out a card that said, no, this is an emotional support animal and doctors certified this. Said Marks, are you going to ruin it for all of us? One of my dog-fancying friends asked when I told her that I was writing this article. I was surprised to learn how many of my acquaintances were the owners of so-called emotional support animals. They defend the practice by saying they don't want to leave their pet home alone or they don't want to have to hire dog walkers or they don't want their pet to have to ride in a plane's cargo hold or that Europeans gladly accept dogs everywhere. They have tricks to throw skeptics off guard. People can't ask me about my disability, one friend told me. But if I feel that I'm in a situation where I might have a struggle being let in somewhere with my dog, then I come up with a disorder that sounds like a nightmare. I like to be creative. I'll say, I lack a crucial neurotransmitter that prevents me from processing anxiety. And without the dog, I'm likely to black out and urinate. She notes Corey Hudson, the CEO of Canine Companions for Independence, a nonprofit provider of trained assistance animals, told me that he has declared war on fake assistance dogs. Earlier this year, his organization submitted a petition, which has now been signed by 28,000 people to the DOJ, requesting it to consider setting up a registration like the DMV to test and certify assistance dogs and to regulate the sale of identification vests, badges, and so forth to, you know, the likes of alligators. They responded that they think the law is adequate. I can't wait to take my emotional support bull into a china shop. Well, hopefully if you tried that, someone would get hip to the fact that you can't bring your bull into the china shop just because you got some piece of paper that calls it an emotional support bull, which is a lot of bull. Yeah, this piece is 10 years old. We're not sure what the latest is on this, but we're going to find out. We realize there are people out there that have issues about going out in public and are helped by animals. But as Patricia Marks asked, what about the rest of us? We should not have to put up with dogs on tabletops in restaurants. You know what I mean? Oh, stop. All right, to change the subject here, let's, let's, let's talk about CBD. New Scientist Magazine, September 16th issue, had it on the cover with the headline, CBD, Wonder Drug or Waste of Money? And the article does note that health claims about cannabidiol are rapidly outpacing the evidence. And a piece by Corin Wetzel takes a look at how to separate hope from hype. She notes that the appeal of effective CBD-based therapies is huge. The compound is comparatively cheap and easy to come by. It's been shown to be safe even at high doses, and it isn't habit-forming. The pharmaceutical industry certainly paying attention. And here's the fun part about this. Uh, CBD is hard to separate from the placebo effect. In one study where people were given CBD-free hemp seed oil but told that it contained the compound, participants' heart rates lowered and they reported a drop in their stress levels, but only if they believed CBD had the power to produce those effects. It's everywhere. People are using it for all sorts of purposes. I guess in the next uh, maybe year or so, we should have a pretty definitive answer as to whether it really works. And 
my suspicion is it might not. I don't know. You raise a good question, Mr. McMillan. What if we convince people that their service animals, what if we convince people their service animals were still with them? And of course, this does open the door to emotional service robots. And you can bet your bottom dollar we're not far away from those showing up on the scene. You heard it here first on Radio Parallax. And the more I think about it, the more this seems like a good idea. Your emotional support robot is not going to take a dump in the, in the aisle of the airplane. On the other hand, here's a phrase that may send a chill up your spine. Emotional support robots with guns. Hey, man, you're stressing me out. And something else we don't have time to fully go into today, but we will, I think, mention in passing was another cover story from New Scientist magazine about reclaiming your privacy with the subheadline, The Alarming New Ways You're Being Tracked Online and How to Fight Back. To quote from the editorial in New Scientist about, about um, this subject, we've all been there aimlessly wandering around online when an ad for, say, the perfect pair of hiking boots pops up, just in time for that long walk you've been planning. No surprise there, perhaps we're used to having our digital lives being tracked, sold, and used to entice us with stuff. But these days, you can read about it in our feature, which begins on page 32, the spookily accurate ads are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to how much insight companies have about our lives. The modern personal data business is an impenetrable tangle of cunning harvesting tricks, location tracking, collation, analysis, profiling, selling, and reselling, and it's worth about 150 billion British pounds per year which would be something like $180 billion. Go to the text of the article itself. We all know by now that we're being tracked online and that the data collected on us is both granular and constant. Perhaps you like that Netflix and Instagram know your film and fashion tastes so well. But a growing number of investigations and lawsuits reveal a new online tracking landscape in which the reach of companies that harvest data is far more insidious than many of us realize. When I looked more closely, I found that my personal data could be affecting everything from my job prospects and loan applications to my access to healthcare. It may, in other words, be shaping my everyday life in ways I was unaware of. You could be forgiven for thinking that with the introduction of legislation like the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, European Union rules implemented in 2018 that give people more access to the data companies hold on them and limit what firms can do with it, data privacy is no longer a real issue. You can always opt out of cookies if you don't want to be tracked, right? When I said this to Pam Dixon at the nonprofit research group Word Privacy Forum, she starts laughing in disbelief. Do you really believe that, she said? Ruggieri goes on to note that since the legislation came into effect, research shows that privacy agreements have become more convoluted, not less. And if you thought that ad blockers and virtual private networks, VPNs, which hide your computer's IP address, offer protection, think again. Many of these services also sell your data. Anyway, the author contacted a firm in Switzerland that analyzes what's being done with the data that uh, is being gathered and sold. And she said, one of the biggest surprises is which of my phone apps are contacting third-party firms on my behalf. The biggest offender in the past week contacting 29 companies was a web browser I use because it describes itself as privacy first. But pretty much every app on my phone from grocery service to virtual notepad was busy contacting other firms while I went about my day. 
Anyway, I'm going to stop right there because there's so much more that needs to be said and we don't have time to say it today, but um, this is a concern. For more information, we would send you to New Scientist for their weekly issue from August 26th to September 1st of this year. And a few weeks later, New Scientist returned to this, this notion of privacy versus tech uh, in an article that I, I am, I'm, um, oh, uh, what's the word for it, uh, blown away by. I'm blown away by this article, and therefore I must share it with you, dear listener. The headline to the piece is, Smart Toilets Could Leak Your Medical Data, Warn Security Experts. I must quote from this, Toilets with built-in gadgets that monitor your health are poised to make a splash in the world of wellness tech, but they come with risks of data leaks and medical misdiagnoses, warn security experts. A range of startups and research projects have developed smart toilets to monitor everything from heart rate to consistency of stools and the presence of certain proteins in urine that indicate disease. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you know what your heart rate is, you can always check your pulse. You don't need a toilet to tell you what your heart rate is. And you certainly don't need what one device features, which is a, quote, anus camera, unquote. Yes, folks, apparently the anus camera takes a photo from below for identification. Now, Ms. McMillan has some skepticism that if you don't recognize somebody, this is going to help you. Yes, this has been described as the polar opposite of facial recognition. The piece quotes an Isabel Wagner of the University of Basel, Switzerland, as saying, if you have a medical hat on, they sound fantastic. No, no, Ms. Wagner, I have a medical hat. I, I am, a, am a licensed physician. And, and no, I don't think this sounds the least bit fantastic. But uh, to their credit, the folks at... Uh, University of Basel, and apparently researchers at De Montfort University in Leicester, UK, recruited a panel of three anonymous privacy experts and asked them to imagine scenarios in which smart toilets backfired. And perhaps not surprisingly, all three expressed serious reservations. Quoting from the piece, One concern was the privacy of people other than the owner. Are visitors consenting to have photographs or measurements taken? I think not. There was also worries about the risk of losing sensitive data to hackers, as well as the possibility of companies selling the data. Yep, we found a subset here that probably could uh, profit from ads for hemorrhoid cream. And they note if smart toilets were installed in public areas or workplaces, would there be questions about who has access to the data, it was argued. The group of experts concluded that smart toilets shouldn't be sold as consumer devices, but instead as medical devices that have to meet very high regulatory standards for privacy and safety. Well, then you, you can bet your ass these companies are going to fight that. One person we suspect would probably approve of this new turn in technology was the late Chuck Berry. And no, we don't have time to go into that story today and probably wouldn't under any circumstances anyhow. But uh, I hope those of you who, who, who get it are having a bit of a chuckle. Whoa, whoa. You know, I'm almost grown. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, and I'm doing all right in school. They ain't said I broke no rules. I ain't never been in Dutch. I don't browse around too much. Anyway, I think, I think we'll go out the way we came in by repeating the headline of the piece, which is Smart Toilets Could Leak Your Medical Data, Warn Security Experts. 
Ms. McMillan takes the position on this, and anyone stupid enough to buy a device with an anus camera deserves to have their data stolen and put on the internet. You know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And I just, I get so tired of this this, this glowing prose that comes out of uh, Silicon Valley about how this new chatbot will, you know, cure cancer, provide men with penile enlargement, whiten your teeth, you know, enable you to run the mile in under four minutes. There's apparently a book out now that takes a look back at, uh, at uh, the efforts in the 80s to bring on uh, cable, cable news. The book is called 24-7. I haven't read it, but I, I was intrigued by the review I saw of it that notes how it was the opponents of uh, network broadcasting were successfully cast the industry as elitist and they peddled cable as a democratizing force that would empower people, politicians, and perspective. Notes the review in the Week magazine. The persuasive account argues that cable's advocates were in fact motivated primarily by profit and that cable television's Sisyphean pursuit of ratings and revenue ultimately served to cultivate a toxic media and political environment. And how's about this for a news blurb in keeping what we're talking about? Here's the headline. A Terminator with Living Fungus Skin. Notes the briefing in the Week magazine from several weeks back. Researchers inspired by the 1984 film The Terminator. Let that one sink in. Researchers inspired by the 1984 film The Terminator have grown a living skin made from a fungus called Ganoderma sessile on an 18-centimeter-tall Terminator model. The skin can sense light and touch and could be useful as a biodegradable sensor for electronics. We've talked before in this program about how it is that uh, Silicon Valley is in pursuit of something they call the singularity, where AI will basically become smarter than us and we will, you know, we will then relinquish control of ourselves to the smarter entity, which doesn't seem like a good idea. And they're also working hard at developing quantum computers, which supposedly could crack what are currently uncrackable codes, meaning that everybody's bank account will be up for grabs. Anyway, I I do have to just pause a minute, take a deep breath and wonder what kind of researchers are thinking, you know, it'd be a really good idea to bring this on board. I'll be back. Well, did you see Terminator 2? The robot there was a good robot. Ah, that's true. So we don't have to worry about uh, about uh, about any of this. Well, we find a good robot to protect us from the bad robots. Okay, good. And a good quantum computer to protect us from the bad. Well, were we just talking more about robots with guns just not too long ago? Yeah. You still don't know where I can get one? No, I don't know, but come with me if you want to live. I do have to confess I, I did enjoy both Terminator and Terminator 2. And speaking of streaming, and how's that for a segue... It's an interesting piece in the New York Times by Brian, by a Brian Chen explaining something that I, I feared might be a personal problem. Well, it might still be a personal problem, but it's much bigger than that. Here's the deal. Unclear dialogue is plaguing streaming services. The piece opens with, what did he just say? These are some of the most commonly uttered words in my house. No matter how much my wife and I crank up the TV volume, the actors in streaming movies and shows are becoming increasingly difficult to understand. We usually end up turning on the subtitles even though we aren't hard of hearing. We're not alone. In the streaming era, as video consumption shifts from movie theaters towards content shrunk down for televisions, tablets, and smartphones, making dialogue crisp and clear has become the entertainment world's toughest technology challenge. 
About 50% of Americans and the majority of young people watch videos with subtitles on most of the time, according to surveys, in large part because they're struggling to decipher what the actors are saying. Peace then quotes Cy Lewis, who runs Hilden Connections, a home theater installation, is saying, it's getting worse. For nearly 40 years, all my customers have issues with hearing the dialogue, and many of them used closed captions. The garbled prattle in TV shows and movies is now a widely discussed problem that tech and media companies are just beginning to unravel with solutions such as speech-boosting software algorithms, which the author of the piece apparently tested, Notes the issue is complex because of myriad factors in play. In big movie productions, professional sound mixers calibrate audio levels for traditional theaters with robust speaker systems capable of delivering a wide range of sound from spoken words to loud gunshots. But when you stream that content through an app on a TV, smartphone, or tablet, the audio has been downmixed or compressed to carry the sounds through tiny, relatively weak speakers, said Mariana Killian, an audio engineer. It doesn't help that TVs are getting thinner and more minimal in design. To emphasize the picture, many modern flat-screen TVs hide their speakers, blasting sound away from the viewer's ears. Anyway, the author apparently uh, applied one of these systems to see if it would help, and it did, but they had to spend $900 for it. Ouch. And in the one minute we have left, we want to circle back to an issue we're not going not gonna to obviously get into today, but we've talked about before, which is the deterioration of Bay Area downtowns. And according to a recent poll, 80% of people living in the Bay Area are, uh, are upset about this. Notes the piece by Julia Protus Sulek. Anthony Estrada hasn't been to downtown San Francisco since he grabbed a beer after the St. Paddy's Day parade. And, quote, a guy walks up and dropped his pants and, well, we don't need to tell you what happened next. It's really not worth going there anymore, said Estrada. Ellie Dunn used to enjoy Oakland's great restaurants and entertainment, but now considers it's downtown one of the scariest places on earth. But the reason I'm mentioning this at all has to do with what was next said about San Jose. In San Jose... It's not necessarily crime or homelessness keeping people away. It's a different kind of demoralizing. Honestly, I personally don't know what downtown San Jose is about, even as a business owner, said Liana Ryan, who owns a restaurant there. We're not a foodie place. We're not a shopping place. Not a whatever. And after COVID, we're desolate. And I have to admit, I have puzzled over the mausoleum-like quality of downtown San Jose. I think urban planners are partly to blame for some of this. And I will close the New Yorker cartoon I saw many years back with the subject being urban planners. A bunch of guys were hunched over an easel. And one guy in a white shirt and tie turns to the others and says, no, no, no. You're putting the ghetto way too close to the shopping center. And let me stop you right there, Mr. Miller, before you think about queuing up, do you know the way to San Jose? We are not going to go there. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we're going to be back uh, soon. We hope to speak in the near future with Dr. Roger Bales of UC Merced about how it is we might be able to save a lot of water and create some clean energy by putting some solar panels over California's irrigation canals.